is taken from Luke chapter 12, um, verses 13 to 34, which is found on page 1045 in your pew Bibles. And it's going to be read this morning um, for us by Ellen Gilpin. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then, who will get what you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be, with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, How much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Normally when I approach a passage um, like this, um, you can you can vouch for this if you're regularly here with us. What I would do, generally try to do is explain a passage, make sure that we uh, have got what it's saying, uh, understood it, uh, and then try to prayerfully and thoughtfully uh, see how it might come to bear on our everyday lives. Today, I have to say, or, or this week as I was preparing, I felt quite hesitant to follow that approach. You see, the truth is, we've heard this before. We've heard this kind of thing many times, some of us before. Variations of it. Jesus teaching about wealth. It's not complicated teaching. It probably doesn't need a whole lot of elaboration. Jesus wants his disciples to understand a few quite simple things about wealth and possessions. The first thing, life's not about stuff. 
second thing, most people settle for a life that is about stuff. And third thing, he invites us then to live by a better story. I suppose what struck me so forcibly this week is that for many of us, for much of the time, although we know this teaching, we've chosen not to be transformed substantially by it. Jesus' teaching on wealth and possessions hasn't changed us. We're a bit like the the pagan mercenary soldiers who went off to the Crusades. If you came from a a non-Christian country or community but signed up as a a mercenary, you were often baptized before you went off into battle to make you a a Christian, uh, ready to, to fight the Christian cause. A lot of these soldiers, history tells us, entered into the water with their swords held high not to allow them to be submerged. The message, I'll be baptized, but not my sword. I want to have the right to do what I want with my sword. In the modern church, we don't have any problem with the sword, most of us. But when we're baptized, we hold our wallet above the water and we say, Lord, you can have me but not this. This remains mine. Stuff to think about here, isn't there? We don't want Christ to control our wallets. For the next few moments this morning, I want to think about why Jesus' teaching about wealth hasn't uh, changed us, or, or at least not substantially. And secondly, how it could why it hasn't, and how it could. So that first question, why hasn't Jesus' teaching about wealth uh, brought about substantial change in the, the lives of people who profess to be his followers? Well, it's because we're living by an entirely different story. Shopping is the religion of our age. I, think, um, I was trying to think of concrete um, ways of seeing this. So think of Belfast City Centre with me. What's happened in Belfast City Centre in, in the last couple of decades? What I see is city centre churches uh, closing down, being sold off to become Chinese restaurants or market, or, or sorry, carpet warehouses. Great big building to store big long runs of carpet. And in their place, we find the new cathedrals of our culture, uh, the the shopping centers, the the Victoria Squares of of this world. In a collection of essays entitled Christ and Consumerism, Alan Storkey warns that consumerism is the chief rival to God in our culture. And and he, he recognizes straight off that that might seem weird to us. It is, after all, only shopping. Storge explains, though, how consumerism functions like a religion. He says, the faith lives and grows because it is countless well-paid servants who, though often unhappy, go about their master's business. The servants of the Lord God are dwarfed in number and in working hours by the servants of consumption. Its ability to recruit seems unlimited. Christianity, despite all the warnings in the Gospels, 
hasn't even seen the challenge, the temptations, the lies, the enemy. I thought it'd be good to run with this idea for a second and just see what, what the extent of the problem is here. I want you to think, I'm looking for a figure from you in your mind. What was the global spend on advertising in 2016? How much money was spent to get you to buy stuff? Anybody want to guess? Shout one out. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's round about that. Okay, so that's, you know, these, these are big numbers, aren't they? Um, half a trillion pounds was spent last year to tell a particular story and that story is that life is all about stuff or consumable experiences. Now, if you've been paying attention to what I'm saying this morning, um, we've considered already in these first early minutes two different messages. I hope you see that they're, they're somewhat at odds with each other. Our culture says, to the tune of half a trillion a year, life is all about stuff. And Jesus Christ says, life is not all about stuff. Do we see that those aren't the same? Are we agreed? I'm just checking. There's a, they're, they're, they're not the same story, are they? They're, they're a different, different story. And I think that raises a question for us. Who's telling the truth? Jesus or the ad men? And probably, I think, actually a more personal question. Whose story are we believing? And living by. Now, it won't surprise you, I hope, if, if I say that I think Jesus is telling the truth and that I think he's the one we ought to give a hearing on where life finds its meaning. So I'm going to suggest we, we side with Jesus and look to him, but I, I want to do a little bit more than that. I want to tell you why we shouldn't side with the consumer approach to life. It's because it's based on a lie. The, the consumer lie is that we find life, satisfaction, meaning, fulfillment in buying things, goods and services. Back to Mike Starkey for a moment. He says that adverts are the icons of consumer society, a Western consumer society. An icon embodies the values and ideals of a community. The message of our advertising, uh, our marketing uh, advertising icons is that consumption is the answer to a range of basic human questions. Consumer advertising channels all our desires for a better life towards striving for consumer goods and personal prosperity. Whenever we started talking about retail therapy, we said it with a smile. We knew that it was a bit of a joke. And then we forgot that it was a joke and imbibed it as a lifestyle. 
We've come to believe that life and happiness comes from having more. More goods, more holidays, more cars. And it's a lie. It's just not true. We consume at least twice as much as our grandparents did in the 1950s. And yet, research shows that we're no happier. We have our highest ever levels of income. And the UK population, we're discovering almost year on year, is less and less happy. A recent poll said that 55% of people in the UK felt depressed last year. I, I don't... I, I offer those as general ideas, not... I don't know if there's much value in, in the actual figures. Folks, if you're still not convinced that consumerism is uh, a lie and, and based on a lie, play the advertising game sometime. Here, here's what you could do. Watch a series of adverts on TV or you know, flick through a glossy magazine. Forget about the product that's been uh, advertised. Don't go there in your mind. Think instead about what's being offered what, what good is being offered? You'll find that you're being offered things like power or peace or status or a happy family or sex or freedom or spirituality or friendship or escape, balance, life. All these wonderful offers are made do that, see what's on offer, and then go back and look at what the actual products were, and you'll laugh your leg off. Because you were offered all this amazing stuff, but actually what was being sold was a brand of tea, a mobile phone, a holiday, and a vacuum cleaner. And these are going to change your life. That's the lie of consumerism. It's the story that our culture lives by. That if I buy the next thing or the next experience, then I'll be living a better life. Folks, the truth is, it's the story that we're living by unless we have recognized that and chosen to live a better story. Consumerism, when I talk about it in those terms and use the kind of figures I did, probably feels like a modern phenomenon, but it doesn't seem to be. Not, not if our biblical text is right. Look, look again, verses 13 to 14. Accumulating wealth doesn't seem to be anything new. Luke tells us there of an occasion where a man, a man approached Jesus and asked him to help settle an inheritance dispute. By the way, how close to home that feels probably depends on what age and stage you're at. If you haven't lost your parents yet, and you and your siblings haven't had to just do that exercise of dealing with the estate, you won't recognize this as a real issue. If you have, you might well recognize this as a real issue. It's, it's very possible and possibly even quite common for families to struggle uh, when this moment comes. Jesus chooses not to make himself the arbiter. He's not going to get into settling this particular family's dispute. Instead, he tells a story about a guy who accumulates more and more wealth until one day he dies 
and he's not able to enjoy it. I'm sure you'd agree, the way Jesus tells that, it's a pretty dramatic story. The barns get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bang, the guy dies. So it's dramatic, but we might be saying, well, it doesn't really ring true. I know a lot of people who have accumulated and accumulated and accumulated and they haven't died sudden premature deaths. They've lived out comfortable uh, retirements. I wonder if Jesus doesn't have something a wee bit broader in mind in, in verse 20 than premature death. Whenever he says to the selfish hoarder, your life will be demanded from you. I wonder if he isn't simply making the point that this life that you've been dreaming of, this life that you've been preparing for as you hoard your wealth, it might not materialize quite the way you've expected. Okay, the the premature death, that that is a possibility. We, We know people whose lives end sooner than might have been expected. Your retirement might end up being significantly shorter than you expect. If it is, you'll not be the first person who had that experience. You might well live a long time in retirement, but you might not have the health to enjoy that experience as much as you'd hoped. Or you might live a long, healthy retirement, relaxed and pampered, only to discover that it's a pretty meaningless and vacuous experience because of the choices you've made and investments that you've made. It seems to me that Jesus is making a point that storing up wealth doesn't guarantee happiness in this life or in the next. I know what it is to have received my inheritance. Um, This week marks an anniversary week for me. Both of my parents died at almost the same day. It's this week in early February. My mum 11 years ago and my dad four years ago. I don't mind telling you that I received quite a modest inheritance. Uh, My dad was uh, quite a successful uh, businessman early in his career, but his career took a a bit of a dive in middle years, and and he didn't really generate any significant wealth after that. My mum never worked out of the house. Um, So by the time my dad died four years ago. Most of the family capital had been drawn down already. Um, There were five kids of us. So if you start with a not not very big pie and split it into five pieces, it's not a whole lot. So as I say, I received a pretty modest inheritance uh, and yet I count myself rich beyond compare because of what I inherited. You see, I didn't receive a whole lot of money, but I received the greatest inheritance of all. My, my parents showed me right throughout my life the truth of Jesus' words. A man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. I'm going to tell you, and if it sounds like a lie... There, there it is. 
It's never occurred to me at any point in my adult life that I would find happiness out of owning stuff. Simply never occurred to me. I was raised to be content without stuff. That's my inheritance. And it's the richest inheritance of all. To be rich without riches. And I think that's the inheritance Jesus Christ calls every one of his followers to. We're going to pause for a moment and, and sing a song. Um, a Rich Young Man. It's one of the few songs in, in our canon that deals particularly with the question of, of money and wealth. We're thinking a little bit about Jesus' teaching on wealth and possessions, and we're trying to answer two questions. Why this teaching hasn't changed us, those who've encountered it over many years, and now, more particularly, how it could how could we change in this regard? We've seen why it's, it's difficult to be changed in this area. There's a, a teaching in the world, a different story to live by, our culture's story of wealth and possessions, and, and it's a very pervasive story. If we haven't seen through it, and we haven't stepped out of it, then the likelihood is we're living right in it in the flow of it. So this second question, how might Jesus' teaching about wealth and possessions change us? Well, it'll begin to change us once we see that it's a better story to live by. To a culture that's desperate for meaning beyond the next gadget, the next expensive experience, Jesus offers this better story. Verses 22 to 23, we're not, as I said, we're not explaining the text today. I, uh, I think I'd probably only do it this service and qualify it too much if we started. I, I think it just speaks. Verses 22 to 23, Jesus says that there's a way of living where you're not preoccupied with stuff. In fact, you hardly think about it at all. He says we can live like the, the birds of the air, the flowers of the field, and we trust God to look after us. Now, I don't claim to have any great gifts uh, of telepathy, but uh, I, I'm going to guess that some of you uh, are maybe thinking, wise up, wise up. That's not how life really works. Folks, I understand that reaction. But here's my problem. It's Jesus who spoke these words. Unless I'm ready to write off Jesus Christ as stupid or irrelevant, I need to grapple a bit longer to see whether there might be a truth here that I haven't quite <coughs> captured yet. Try and understand these teachings of Jesus and teachings like them. Let me offer a, a simple observation. I don't think the teachings of Jesus make sense in isolation. So this teaching doesn't make sense if you don't read it with the other teachings. Uh, flick with me for a second uh, to chapter 14, just a couple of pages over, verse 27. 
The same Jesus recorded by Luke a few, just a, a few pages further. He says, anyone who doesn't carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You can't enter into the life that Jesus has talked about until you've done some dying. You've got to die to something before you can live. You've got to die in the terms I'm using today to the old story if you want to live the new story. You've got to put the old story to bed, Jesus says, before my story will start to make any full and and real sense. Folks, I think the reason we struggle with this stuff about wealth and possessions is that many of us are struggling to live the Jesus story. And it's because we're still trying to live the old story too. We, we love it. All of us, I think, if, if there's one passage in scripture that I see people light up or nod in agreement or just simply love, it's Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we say to ourselves, yes, of course. I love that. Jesus, if if your yoke is easy and your burden is light, then of course I, I want your easy, light yoke. And so we take it from Jesus, the easy, light yoke, and we set it on top of the yoke we're already carrying. Without even realizing it, without even realizing that we're already carrying a yoke, a way of life, a worldview, we try to set the Jesus way on top. No wonder we're exhausted. What person could possibly carry two yokes? That's not what we were made for. By the way, if you're not sure of this image that I'm offering here today in the way of, I I think Jesus talks about this in very explicit terms. Talking about wealth and possessions, he makes precisely the same point when he says about wealth, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Don't carry both yokes. Choose one. Folks, if it's true that, that we might be, a lot of us here trying to carry two yokes, I, I suppose the question we need to finish it with is, well, well, what do we do? Or how does that change? What would it take for us to cut loose finally from this consumer society and to find the freedom of the easy, light yoke? Would a rant from the minister do it? I don't think so. That's why I'm not going to rant. We need a new radical vision 
of the goodness of life in the kingdom of God. A vision of life with Jesus that makes all other visions for life pale into insignificance by comparison. We need to come to the conclusion finally that the good life is found only in him. Jesus helps us here in his teaching. He gives us uh, a couple of very, very short stories that show us how this works. Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. You know these stories very possibly. If not, feel free to flick them up. It's the story of a great treasure and a great pearl. A treasure and a pearl of great price. They're effectively the same story. They're not two stories. It's one story retold to emphasize it. Jesus says, Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Teaching on this verse, Dallas Willard says, imagine that you discovered gold or oil in a certain property and no one else knew about it. Okay? You're about to buy a house in East Belfast. Some of us have done this. Somehow or other you discover that there's a, a gold mine or an oil well in the back garden. And the bidding starts. But you're the only one who knows that there's a gold mine and an oil well in the back garden. The bidding starts and it goes up and up. It's a nice house. Other people want it too. The bidding goes up and up and up. But you, because of what you know, you sell everything that you have to make sure that your bid is, your offer is received, your bid is accepted, and that you get that property. Now tell me this. Do you feel hard done by? That you've sold everything you've had and sacrificed it to get the property? No way, you're laughing all the way to the bank. Your quid's in, you know that you have found the greatest thing you've ever managed to dis discover. Folks, if you can imagine your way into that story, very poorly uh, evoked by me, you're beginning to get an idea of what life in the kingdom is like. This is what it's like to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus Christ. But what we're saying, listen, surely you're not saying I have to give up everything or that I can't ever think about wealth and possessions. I have to make a provision for, for myself, for my family. I can't stop thinking about these things entirely. Folks, it's okay to think about money and paying the bills, that's, that's okay. It's just that once we've found the treasure, once we've found the pearl of great price, we find that we don't want to think about them all that much. And when we do think about money and possessions, they're just not that exciting anymore. They don't seem that interesting. 
Are the, the aspirations, the lifestyle aspirations of our neighbours just simply don't interest us as much anymore? Keeping up with the Joneses is a category that falls out of our minds. And Jesus' words here about birds of the air. Maybe you haven't seen a bird in the air recently, have you? Watch one, next one you see. Take a moment this springtime to notice when the world comes back to life, when the flowers. Notice the beauty. Jesus' words here, he wants us not to be anxious about what's going to happen to us. He wants us to consider the birds of the air, the flowers of the field. And once we see the beauty of life in the kingdom, these words no longer sound crazy. They're not out of touch with reality at, at all. They, they begin to present themselves as absolutely sane and accurate. Because there is a better story to live by. When we find the treasure, you see, we have found life with the one who, though he was rich, yet he became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. We'll be less given from here on in to looking after ourselves because we realize that somebody looks after us and that we're in spectacularly good hands. Shall we pray? Father God, we we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the way it clarifies our vision every time we look at it. Lord, we thought that when we came to you, it was something extra to take on in our lives that we were supposed to add you to life as it already was. But Lord, we're, we're beginning to see that, that the life you offer us will only ever make sense when we, when we leave some other stuff behind. Uh, when we die to to a particular way of living, a particular story, when we unyoke ourselves from a particular sense of uh, a set of ambitions and concerns. Lord, I pray you'd help us. Help us to see that anything we ever give up will receive back a hundred times over Anytime we free ourselves up from anything that allows us to receive more of you, our lives are enriched in ways that we can't even imagine. So Lord, I pray you'd help us all. Free us from the love of wealth, the desire to hoard it, and entrust us, help us to entrust ourselves instead into your hands to live in this world with great, great joy 
like people have found a treasure. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.